You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 29th. I'm Corbin Stover from Drake University. Here is our first story. Thompson dives into history for a mural. On any given day, Omaha-based artist Weston Thompson can be found painting, sculpting, illustrating, writing, designing a mural, or even making music. It seems there isn't a creative medium he hasn't worked with. I went to college for multimedia art, Thompson told the Daily Nonpareil. I was interested in digital art. I had a dream of working at, like, Pixar, you know, one of those computer animation companies. And then as I started taking art classes in college, it kind of opened up to me painting and sculpture and a whole bunch of these other art forms. Suddenly, sitting at a desk in front of a computer seemed very limiting. So I kind of started developing my painting, my drawing, some sculptural stuff. His interest in such a wide array of arts can be tied to the time he spent as a youth in San Francisco. I grew up in Sonoma County, which is some which is some people kind of know as wine country. But I mostly grew up in a kind of apple orchard area. But I was going back and forth because San Francisco was kind of like the art capital that was closest to me, Thompson said. There's a whole bunch of really talented artists that were really doing lots of projects out there in the urban community there. The arts community Thompson hung out with regularly held poetry and painting exhibitions, and there were organized outings to different neighborhoods where we'd paint like a whole block with murals, he said. So that's where I got some of that start, working with some more of those big professional artists who've been doing that for a long time in a big city context, Thompson said. So I kind of practiced and learned from them. Thompson also began designing and painting indoor murals, which taught him how to work with clients to determine their vision for the art and how he could integrate his own artistic style into that vision. I remember, this one couple had just moved into a house and they wanted their whole living room kind of wrapped around to where their kitchen was. They wanted it all to be like this kind of African jungle scene. And there were elephants and there was like panthers. They wanted all this stuff, Thompson said. I guess I I cut my teeth on that stuff early on. I really learned a lot growing up doing little projects like that. Rather than view the different media he works at and separate, Thompson sees them as interconnected. Working in one medium can enhance his understanding of a different medium. I find that jumping back and forth between different mediums and processes and practices actually helps build insight and knowledge in a way that kind of gives back to all those things, he said. I'm not painting, but when I'm sculpting, I'm learning how to see things in three dimensions. That helps my painting out later. So everything is connected in that way. And coming up with his design for the trail-facing wall building at 29 South 21st Street, Thompson spent a lot of time researching the building's history and speaking with its owner, prolific Council Bluffs home builder John Roth and his wife Beverly. They're both very interested in the surrounding community, Thompson said. John built tons of houses locally and was brought up and learned some of the construction trades there. So he'd been around for a long time, so it was really interesting just to get his sense of history of the area. Thompson's mural used Roth's personal story as a metaphor for the history of the United States. I thought that his story was kind of like the typical American dream story, and it had a lot more interesting tidbits of history that I thought were relatable and I thought were important to capture, Thompson said. Roth came to the U.S. with his parents from Belgium after World War II. He began learning the construction business by fixing windows and other small tasks before working his way up to owning his own construction company. I took some of John's personal story and kind of incorporated imagery around that, Thompson said. 
I also wanted to make it something that was not just about him, but about a kind of shared sense of community, kind of building America as a metaphor. Thompson Mural has a few focal points that your eye is easily drawn toward, like the bulldozer on the left side and the left hand holding a hammer aloft on the right. John is left-handed, and when Belgium was taken over by the Nazis, they tried to force him not to use his left hand when he was a kid, Thompson said. And it was interesting because his left hand was actually a boon in the construction business or construction trade because it allowed him to use electric saws and things where he could see where he was cutting, and the right-handed people had to look over the blade and kind of see. So it was actually a benefit. Thompson said that while he was painting the mural, people who were walking or biking along the trail would stop and chat. So this guy just randomly on his bike came by, Thompson said. He was also involved in construction trades. He's retired now, and he was left-handed, and he talked to me. He's like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's just one of those things that connects with people on a level that we don't always know about. And something might seem really specific to one person, but it's actually a shared thing. In researching the building's history, Thompson discovered that at one time it housed the George Porgy Cereal and Popcorn Company, which he incorporated into his mural designed by making the company's logo. A young boy dressed as a cowboy holding a cereal box under one arm, the centerpiece. That kid actually grew up to be an Air Force pilot too, Thompson said. So he was a veteran. So there's a lot of connections to serving your country. Kind of like Roth starting a business building homes for people. The boy in the George Porgy logo was the company's owner's son, Alfred Savage, who would grow up to become a highly decorated lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force. It was Alfred Savage who piloted the reconnaissance plane after Hiroshima two hours after the dropping of the atomic bomb. Thompson incorporated Roth's love of country and community, with subtle nods to the American flag and some of the colors and patterns he used. In a unique twist, Thompson also integrated some of Roth's architectural design of local houses into the mural, lending it an abstract quality. I was trying to integrate the geometric drawings of buildings from what I incorporated from some of John's architectural drawings were bird's eye views, so if you're looking down on top of a roof in a house, Thompson said. Over the years, Roth built around 500 houses in the Council Bluffs area, which Thompson commemorated with the number 500 to the left of the hand holding the hammer. Thompson designed the mural to be complex, with a lot of meaning embedded throughout. He wants people to be able to enjoy it simply as a piece of public art, but there's a lot of history if someone wants to look for it. I wanted it to be dynamic, he said. I wanted it to be eye-catching, but I also wanted it to be rewarding for someone who was interested in discovering more about where the design came from. There's a lot of local stuff that, if someone wants to dig, they can figure it out. Our next article is, Iowa lawmakers advance tax cut for casinos, with eye on casino coming to Omaha. Lawmakers on an Iowa House panel approved a bill Monday to lower the state's tax rate for licensed casinos, hoping to help the state's 19 casinos compete with opening gambling facilities in the neighboring states of Nebraska and Illinois. Representative Jane Bloomingdale... Republican northward, said the bill comes amid discussions of other tax cuts, including the governor's proposal to speed up and further reduce Iowa's individual income tax rate. We're lowering taxes for individuals, we're lowering taxes for corporations, but we're not lowering taxes for casinos. It just doesn't seem fair. If we're going to lower taxes for everyone across the state of Iowa, we maybe need to look at everyone. House Study Bill 719 would lower the graduated tax rate for casinos' gross revenue from slots and table games. The current highest rate, 22%, applies to casinos that generate at least $3 million in gross revenue from gambling. 
Under the bill, the tax rate would decrease a percentage point for three years, ending at 19% rate in a fiscal year 2027. Iowa currently has 19 casinos that offer table games, slots, and sports betting. According to the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission, gambling revenue in fiscal year 2023 reached more than $4 billion, although both gambling and sports betting revenues decreased slightly from the previous year. Lobbyists with Iowa casinos said that while their businesses are doing well in Iowa and attracting many out-of-state visitors, lower tax rates in Nebraska and Illinois could put Iowa casinos at a disadvantage in future years. They say the tax cut would help Iowa gambling establishments stay competitive. Drug Stroik, representing Great River Entertainment and Caesars Entertainment, said many out-of-state residents visit Iowa casinos. But with new casino openings soon in Omaha, Places like Harrah's and Horseshoes, both operated by Caesars and Council Bluffs, will be facing a tremendous amount of pressure to attract visitors to Iowa casinos, he said. It will take additional investment in the facilities in Iowa to continue to be bright, shining new attractions, to keep wanting to keep people wanting to come over, Stroik said. Bloomingdale said while she's not sure about the bill's future, she believed it was an important one to bring forward, as casinos have given back significantly to the communities where they are located. Tax cuts for the casinos would result in more money being invested in Iowa's economy and local resources, the lawmaker said. Every fire department has a new fire truck. Every church has a new roof. Every cemetery has tombstones that have been fixed on a paved road, Bloomingdale said. So I look at the things they've done in our communities that, you know, if they have 1% more income, that money would go directly into our communities. Our next story is Prom Sponsor Sots. Nonprofit needs help to prom tailored for people with disabilities. Susan Enwold, second from Rye, stands outside the headquarters of Council Bluffs Cares at 10 Huron in Lake Manawa. With her staff members, Maddie, Chrissy, Noah, the organization plans to hold a prom for those with physical and mental disabilities in June. Going to the prom is an event many people will remember forever, but some are left out of the festivities, including all too often people with disabilities for whom the prom can be a dream unfulfilled. A Council Bluffs nonprofit is looking to change that Saturday, June 22nd, when the Mid-America Center will host Dreams Do Come True, a prom just for people with disabilities. We know a lot of them didn't have one in high school, said Susan Enwold, Executive Director of Council Bluffs Cares, which is sponsoring the prom. This will be, one of, this will be the first of what hopefully will be an annual event. Enwold anticipated up to 350 people with physical or mental disabilities will attend, not including parents and support staff, who will bring the turnout as high as 150. This is for the parents as well, being able to watch their child have a good time and be happy, Enwold say, said. Council Bluffs Cares is a relatively new organization whose purpose is to teach those with the physical or mental disabilities not only job skills, but also the ability to interact more successfully with other people while in public. We call it skills training, Enwold said. We are teaching them a skill so that they can go out in our community and be employed. But we also teach them mental skills on learning how to be with others, such as dealing with the public, how to greet people, how to deal with other employees. We teach them interactive skills. This organization started four years ago with a special needs optimist club. Then, in June 2022, it moved into a home at 10 Huron Drive in Lake Manawa. This building is owned by Salem United Methodist Church, and we're the first nonprofit here, Enwold said. The church pays all the bills for running the facility, with care staff doing much of the cleaning and such, she said. 
The facility features an art studio where clients can learn about painting, sewing, woodworking, crocheting, and other skills. Crafts are also taught. The building can come in to purchase finished products made by the clients, Enwold said. Plans even call for opening a downtown Council Bluffs retail store featuring these products, she said. There's also a cafe in the facility where one of the staff members cooks meals, along with a food pantry on site. When they first come in, we ask them what they want to do, Enwold said. We try to find their interest, what they are good at. The organization is looking to help from area businesses, civic organizations, youth groups, churches, and community members to pay expenses for the upcoming prom. The goal is to have all those attending to enjoy the evening free of charge, she said. Available sponsorships including sponsoring a dessert bar or food station for $5,000, non-alcoholic drinks for $2,500, games, activities, souvenirs, and prizes for $1,500, floral corsages, boutonnieres, hair, makeup, formal wear cleaning, and photo booth for $1,000, or table seating eight and decorations for $500. Smaller donations are welcomed as well, just because they deserve a beautiful night, Enwold said. Music will be provided by local DJs Gary Wise and his son Joey. The dance floor will be accessible for those in wheelchairs or those using walkers. Enwold said she knows some of these people who went to proms but had to sit all night in the stands because of their physical disabilities. A room will also be available for activities for those who prefer a quieter time, she said. Enwold plans to contact all the schools in Council Bluffs, Glenwood, Trainer, and Underwood to invite their disabled students along with similar agency CARES works with in Council Bluffs and Omaha. The promise for anyone ages 13 and up, she said. While students in school are being invited, there are numerous people over age 30 planning who have signed up to attend as well, including a 65-year-old man, she said. <laughs> for more information, email councilbluffscaresinc at gmail.com or call Enwold at 712-309-2200 or Assistant Director Aaron Houston at 712-310-8021. Council Bluffs Cares is open from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., Tuesdays through Fridays. It's no little task on what we're doing, Enwold said. Our next article is Wabansi State Park Seeks Next Artist for Residency. Applications are being sought for the latest round of Artists in Residence program at Wabansi State Park. The program, run by the park Friends of Wabansi State Park and Golden Hills Resource Conservation and Development, is in its fifth season and was the first of its kind in the state, according to a news release. Artists will receive living and studio space in the park, with time to focus on their work and seek inspiration from the southern Lowe's Hills. This program is modeled after similar artist residencies at national parks and state parks outside of Iowa. After the park's successful inaugural year, the Iowa Department of National Resources launched its 20 Artists, 20 Parks program in conjunctions with faculty and graduate students at Iowa State University. This year, a Wabansi State Park Artist in Residence program will award one summer residency that will take place from June 14th to June 28th. Artists may work in a variety of media. Artist residencies are tentatively planned for next winter. The program was designed to allow artists a respite from their typical distractions so that they could intensely focus on their work in the quiet seclusion of Wabansi State Park while finding inspiration in the beauty of their natural surroundings. In exchange, for the residency in, the, in exchange for the residency, participants are required to perform public engagement either in person or through social media and to donate one piece of art to the park at the conclusion of their stay. Applications are being accepted now through March 31st. 
artists will be selected through a competitive application process and notified by May 1st. The program is open to artists of multiple disciplines and from any location. For more details and to apply, visit goldenhillsrecord.org slash artistinresidence. Wabansi State Park is a 2,000-acre preserve located on the Loess Hill National Scenic Byway near Hamburg. Our next article is entitled, Pace, Hoff Family Creates Scholarship. Potawatomi Arts, Culture, and Entertainment and the Hoff Family are proud to announce the Hoff Family Arts and Culture Scholarship for 2024, creating opportunities for graduating high school seniors pursuing studies in art, music, theater, dance, and culinary arts. The scholarship, available to two- or four-year institutions, certificate certificate programs, or professional training, will be awarded to two local students. The annual award ceiling is $10,000, with an individual maximum award of $5,000, according to a news release. Celebrating with Ted Hoff and his family on this scholarship initiative is a meaningful step towards nurturing the artistic aspirations of our local students. PACE CEO Donna Kem said in the release, we are committed to fostering a supportive environment for their creative pursuits. Beyond standard criteria, applicants must accumulate at least 40 hours of service or participation of the Hoff Family Arts and Culture Center or with PACE partner organizations, which includes the Chanticleer Community Theater, Canesville Symphony Orchestra, America Midwest Ballet, and Kitchen Council. Service examples include participating in Chanticleer Productions, volunteering in the box office, working in the gallery as a junior PACE ambassador, and assisting teachers or chefs during class. The deadline for the scholarship is March 31st. Our family values and supports the arts. We're proud to provide this opportunity to deserving students, Ted Hoff said in the release. We hope this encourages more local students to pursue arts careers and engage in the Hoff Family Arts and Culture Center's activities. Now, on to something else. This next article is titled, Feds Allege Children Cleaned Plants at the Sioux City Slaughterhouse. The United States Department of Labor is alleging that a janitorial company has been using children as young as 14 years old to clean an Iowa slaughterhouse and meat packing plant. Fayette Industrial, also known as Fayette and Janitorial Service, provides contracted janitorial services at slaughtering and meat packing plants throughout the United States, according to the Department of Labor's lawsuit. In Sioux City, Fayette employees worked at a slaughtering and meat packing plant owned and operated by Seaboard Triumph Foods, the lawsuit states. The Department of Labor alleges Fayette employed minor children at the Seaboard Triumph plant to work the overnight cleaning shifts in violation of the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act, which prohibits employers from using any oppressive child labor. The lawsuit alleges that last December, the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division launched an investigation into Fayette's business practices and found evidence that the company was employing minors under the age of 16 at the Sioux City plant to work the overnight shifts. The minors were allegedly working more than three hours per day and more than 18 hours per week while school was in session, in violation of the FLSA. The miners were allegedly tasked with the cleaning of power-driven machines, including meat and bone-cutting saws, head splitters, jaw pullers, and skinning equipment. In a brief filed with the court, the Department of Labor states that before entering the Sioux City plant, investigators conducted surveillance there and saw employees entering the building who appear to be miners based on their stature and appearance, with some of the individuals carrying pink and purpley sparkly backpacks. All of the younger-looking employees hid their faces while entering the plant, 
the investigators alleged. Based on records provided by the company, Fayette was still employing four minor children plants on December 12, 2023, one month after an on-site execution of a search warrant the Department of Labor claims. The Department of Labor also alleges that one of the miners reported working five to six days a week cleaning machines while they were in operation, including machinery designed to debone hams. The next article is entitled, McConnell to Step Down. Long-serving leader, 82, says he will finish his term in the Senate. Mitch McConnell, the longest-serving Senate leader in history who who maintained his power in the face of dramatic convulsions in the Republican Party for almost two decades, will step down from that position in November. McConnell, who turned 82 last week, announced his decision Wednesday in the well of the Senate, the chamber where he looked in awe from its back benches in 1985 when when he arrived and where he grew increasingly comfortable in the front row seat afforded the party leaders. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter, he said. So I stand before you today to say that this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. His decision punctuates an ideological transition in the Republican Party, from Ronald Reagan's brand of traditional conservatism and strong international alliances to the often isolationist populism of former President Donald Trump. McConnell said he plans to serve out his Senate term, which ends in January 2027, a bleat from a different seat in the chamber. President Joe Biden, who has had a productive working relationship with McConnell, said he was sorry to hear the news. I've trusted him and we have a great relationship, Biden said. We fight like hell, but he has never, never, never misrepresented anything. Aide said McConnell's announcement was unrelated to his health. The Kentucky senator had a concussion from a fall last year and two public episodes where he froze up while speaking. As I have been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work, McConnell said. A moment when I, when I am certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. It arrived today. The senator was under increasing pressure from the sometimes hostile wing of his party that aligns with Trump. The two have been estranged since December 2020, when McConnell refused to abide Trump's lie that the election of Democrat Biden as president was the product of fraud. Their relationship has essentially been over since Trump refused to accept the results of the Electoral College, but the rupture deepened dramatically after the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. McConnell assigned blame and responsibility to Trump and said that he should be held to account through the criminal justice system for his actions. For our next article, entitled, Food Aid Reaches Northern Gaza. Families of hostages pressure Netanyahu to reach deal for presses. Rafa, Gaza Strip. Aid convoys carrying food reached northern Gaza this week, Israeli officials said Wednesday, the first major delivery in a month to the devastated, isolated area, where the United Nations has warned of worsening starvation among hundreds of thousands of Palestinians amid Israel's offensive. The increasing alarm over hunger across Gaza fueled international calls for a ceasefire as the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar worked to secure a deal between Israel and Hamas for a pause in fighting and the release of some hostages seized in the militant's October 7th attack. Mediators hope to reach an agreement before the Muslim holy month of Ramadan starts about March 10th. So far, Israel and Hamas remain far apart in public on their demands. Increasing the pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has re- to reach a deal, families of hostages on Wednesday launched a four-day march from southern Israel to Jerusalem to demand their loved ones be set free. 
Some of the approximately 100 hostages freed during ceasefire in late November joined the march, which is to end near Netanyahu's official residence. In its October 7th attack, Hamas militants abducted about 250 people, according to Israeli authorities. After the November releases, some 130 hostages remain, and Israel says about a quarter of them are dead. Israel's assault on Gaza has killed more than 29,900 Palestinians. United Nations officials warn of further mass casualties if it follows through on vows to attack the southernmost city of Rafah, where more than half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million has taken refuge. They also say Rafah offensive could collapse the aid operation that has already been crippled in the fighting. Across Gaza, more than 576,000 people, a quarter of the population, are a step away from famine, the UN says. But northern Gaza in particular has been gutted by hunger. The north has been largely cut off, and much of it has been leveled since Israeli group troops in late October. Several hundred thousand Palestinians are believed to remain there, and many have been reduced to eating animal fodder to survive. The UN says one in six children under two in the north suffer from acute malnutrition and wasting. For retail, we have a new story entitled Macy's to Close Some Stores. Macy's will close 150 unproductive namesake stores over the next three years, including 50 by year-end. The department store operator said after posting a fourth-quarter loss and declining sales. As part of the strategy, Macy aims to upgrade its remaining 350 stores, with plans to add more salespeople to fitting areas and shoe departments, while adding more visual displays like mannequins. At the same time, the company signaled a pivot to luxury, which has fared better overall. It said it would open 15 of its higher-end Bloomingdale stores and 30 of its luxury Blue Mercury Cosmetics locations. The Macy's stores set to close account for less than 10% of its sales, the company said. While adjusted net income and revenue topped Wall Street expectations, Macy's offered a muted look outlook for the year. We are making the necessary moves to reinvigorate relationships with our customers through improved shopping experiences, relevant assortments, and compelling value, said Macy CEO Tony Spring, former CEO of Bloomingdale's, whose success succeeded Jeff Jennett earlier this month. The plans come as the department store chains faces a proxy fight from Arc House Management which nominated a slate of nine directors for election to Macy's board last week. Last month, Macy's rejected a $5.8 billion takeover offer from the hedge fund and brigade capital management, an investment manager. Activist investors and pressure to increase sales are just two critical issues facing the new CEO. Even before the pandemic, department stores were facing intense competition from online rivals. Neiman Marcus and JCPenney filed for bankruptcy protection, emerging as smaller entities. Consumers have proven resilient and willing to shop even after a bout of inflation. Their behaviors have shifted, with some Americans trading down to lower price goods. Spring told analysts that while inflation has slowed, so has labor and wage growth. As such, we expect our consumer to remain under pressure, said Spring, noting the company has to fight for market share in a tough environment. Even aspirational luxury shoppers have pulled back, he said. Macy's is maneuvering to shore up sales by accelerating the expansion of a small format stores that can provide more convenience to its customers. It announced plans in October to add up to 30 small format locations through the fall of 2025, bringing the total number to roughly 42. The next round of expansions starts in the fall. Yet Macy's is still cutting jobs to lower costs. 
In January, Macy's said it would trim about 3.5 of its total workforce, roughly 2,350 employees, and close five locations. Spring said during a phone interview that he didn't have an estimated number of workers impacted since the closures will happen over a three-year period. Arkhouse and Brigade offer $21 for each of the remaining shares in Macy's they don't already own. Macy's said it had concerns over the financing plan and the value of the offer. <coughs> Last week, Macy's said that it was seeking additional financing information from Arkhouse and Brigade to potentially advance talks with its board. Rather than providing that additional information, Macy's said Arkhouse sought to extend its director nomination window by 10 days. Spring told analysts that the retailer still believes in its physical footprint. We believe in stores, he said. We have to focus on making sure that we have the best stores, not the largest number of stores. The strategy comes after Macy surveyed 60,000 customers about what they liked and disliked about the shopping experience. What they found was that customers wanted less cluttered stores and more service. Macy's also is overhauling its private brands, which helps stores stand out and also have better profit margins. The company is focusing on upgrading the first group of 50 Macy's namesake stores which will act as incubators, Spring said. Macy's had a quarterly loss of $71 million, or $0.26 cents per share. Adjusted for impairment and restructuring charges, Macy's earned $2.45 per share, topping Wall Street projections for $1.98, according to FactSet. The company, that compares with a profit of $508 million last year in the same period. Sales fell nearly 2% to 8 $12 billion, but still better than $8.09 billion that industry analysts had expected. Online sales decreased 4%, while sales at stores were roughly flat. Overall, comparable sales, which included sales at stores and its digital channels opened at least a year, slipped 5.4%. At its namesake stores, sales at stores opened at least a year, fell 6%, including its licensed business during the latest quarter, while the metric at Bloomingdale's was down 1.5%. The company expects profit for the current fiscal year in the range of $2.5 to $2.85 per share, while sales could range from $22.2 billion to $22.9 billion. Analysts were expecting an annual profit of $2.77 per share on sales of $22.81 billion. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 29th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Prince Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Corbin Stover from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. Again, if you have any comments or questions, please call 515-243-6833. Now on to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Donald R. Chapman, who was born January 16, 1952, and passed away February 23, 2024. Donald Ralph Chapman, age 72 of Council Bluffs, passed away February 23, 2024. He was born on January 16, 1952, in Council Bluffs to Billy and Betty, also known as Michelle, Chapman. Don graduated from Lewis Central High School and later became a licensed third-grade engineer, working several years at IWCC and Jenny Edmondson Hospital. He enjoyed being creative and liked working with his hands. 
He was always able to make something usable out of nothing. Don was smart, kind-hearted, and if you need something fixed, he would always offer his expertise to fix it without any hesitation. You might say he was a jack-of-all-trades. We will surely miss his presence in our lives. He was preceded in death by his dad, Billy, and his sister, Dorothy. Donald is survived by his mother, Betty, sisters, Deb Chapman and Rajan Clifton, daughter Annie Chapman, sons Billy Chapman and Jesse Benson, four grandchildren, nieces, nephews, family, and friends. No services at this time. Our next obituary is for Jean Richter. Jean Richter passed away on February 24th, 2024, at 91, due to a well-worn heart that warmed her hearth, home, and those around her. She was born in California in 1932 to parents Joseph and Ermel. Jean loved fiercely and without reserve, be it family or friend, feathered or furred. She was a voracious reader and loved a well-told narrative with adventure and mystery. In her later years, she and Jim traveled internationally, creating their own stories of adventure and mystery with food, fauna, geography, culture, and friends. Jean is survived by her husband James and their two daughters, Karen Richter of Council Bluffs and Janice Bryant of Long Branch, uh, Wisconsin. Five great-grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. Sharp until the end, with wit, humor, candor, and caring, we celebrate the joy she brought to us all. The family will have a private service. Donations may be made in her name to the Glenwood Public Library. That is all we have for today's obituaries. Now, on to sports. Our first article in that section is entitled, Saint It Sweet. It's about St. Albert. St. Albert wins first game at state since 2000, dethrones two-time champions. Going up against back-to-back defending 1A state champions, number 4 St. Albert looked every bit the championship caliber stream with a 53-42 win over number 5 Bishop Garrigan on Wednesday. Shooting for their first state win since 2000, when they finished runner-up and making just their second appearance in Des Moines since then, the Saints started strong at Wells Fargo Arena. Early on, the two teams exchanged the lead twice in the first quarter, but a three-point play by Kira Hotchkine and a corner three-pointer from Ella Klusman gave St. Albert the momentum going into the second. They started out in a 2-3 zone, and Ava and Missy draw a lot of attention down in the block, and Ella draws a lot of attention, so she draws people out of the corner says Lily Crone, who set the tone early for the Saints with three baskets in the lane, and the middle was kind of open. That's where I found a lot of my shots at the beginning. The Saints extended the run to 16-3 to before the Golden Bears got a three to fall to break a cold spell. Led by Crone with nine points, Klusman and Ava Underwood added six points as the Saints held a 28-16 to lead at the break. Ball movement is a staple of the St. Albert offense, as the team swings the ball around the top of the key on most possessions. Finishing with 17 assists as a team, led by Underwood with 5, makes it difficult for opposing defenses. It's really hard for other teams to defend us when we can do that, Junior Ellie Monahan said. And not only are our starters really good, but our bench is so deep and everyone just contributes their own part. St. Albert shot 48% from the field in the opening 16 minutes. But in the third quarter, the Golden Bears made their charge. An 11-2 run was capped by an acrobatic save under the basket to lead a three-pointer to cut the Saints' lead to five heading into the fourth. But the Saints didn't flinch. 
Although back-to-back -back champions had all the experience necessary to win a game like this, the Saints were prepared and responded accordingly. Coach did tell us going into the second half that they would have a run, and it's all about our mentality, just going into it and being able to push through and just be able to play good defense, and that's what we did, Monahan said. And that just carried us through the end. You gotta understand that, Saints head coach Dick Wentengill added. We knew their run was coming. You know, they're two-time defending state champs for a reason. They have big hearts over there, and they fight, so we knew that was coming. To withstand it, Wetzengel said it was all about toughness. That's where our schedule pays off, he continued. We play in a lot of games where the game is in doubt in that third and fourth quarter. And when you play larger schools like we do, you get in situations like that in the season. So it wasn't the first time we had to go through that today. So our girls were resilient that way. They showed their toughness and did a great job in the third and fourth quarter withstanding their rally. Underwood scored five of the Saints' 14th quarter's points. The sophomore forward finished with double-double, 13 points, 11 rebounds, as the Saints out-rebounded the Golden Bears, 38-28. to I just think staying calm and rebounding is really what helped us, Underwood said. It's a crazy place here. You need to be able to manage that. So I think working hard on rebounds and stuff like that. Rebounding is one of the things that our team does better, and I think that it helps create more offense. In earning their first win at State since 2000, each played an equal part, and some paid a price. When going through the post-game gauntlet of interviews, Crone was noticeably hoarse, a little sick, or all the yelling. Both, Crone said. I'm just so excited, Crone said. This team is so awesome, and especially since it's my senior year. There's nowhere else that you want to end your basketball career. For Wetzengel, the moment was nearly tear-jerking. It means a lot, he said, eyes watering. It shows you how hard these kids have worked. I'm just so proud. I told them after the game, I'm so proud of them. They have busted their butts for years for this moment, and they got their payoff today. But the job's not finished yet. St. Albert will face number one North Lynn, 24-1, in the semifinals on Friday at 1.30 p.m. at Wells Fargo Arena, looking to make their first state championship game since 2000. Our next sports story is entitled Turnovers Doom Lewis Central. Titans give the ball away 28 times in state quarterfinal loss to Bishop Heelan. A lengthy drought and 28 turnovers doomed 4A number 5 Lewis Central and a 59-35 loss to Bishop Heelan in 4A state quarterfinals on Tuesday. It's tough to beat a team like that when you have 28 turnovers, Titans head coach Chris Hannafan said. Their pressure's really good. It's better than any pressure we've seen all year. It's hard to get ready for it, but I thought, you know, that was a big part of it. Brooke Larson came to play for the Titans, scoring the team's first 10 points on the way to a 10-7 lead, grabbing 10 offensive rebounds along the way. Evenly matched for the first 13 minutes and change, turnovers began to pile up for the Titans. Facing a Heelan defense initially played in man-to-man, -man, the switch to a 1-3-1 zone proved challenging. I thought we executed pretty well when they went man and they went back to their bread and butter, and I thought early were we ex executed okay, and then we ramped up the pressure, Hannafan said. We kind of did some things that are uncharacteristic, but, you know, that's part of basketball. Larson said the Titans took advantage of the Crusaders' man defense when she was able to work in the lane and field find her open shots. When they switched over to that 1-3-1, the pressure is a little different when you're getting trapped in the corners. You're getting trapped up top, she said. It's just tough, but I think AJ did a great job with all the pressure. With our experience and what we learned, we did what we could with it, and their defense is great. 
Finishing the first half with 12 giveaways, the Crusaders capitalized with 15 points and ended the first half on an 11-0 run to go up double digits at the break. Larson poured in 16 points and 6 boards in the first half. To start the second half, the Titans struggled to get the offense going, missing their first X shots before a Sydney teen layup with 3.46 left in the quarter. Down by the largest margin of the game up to that point, the Titans fought back with a 9-0 run to force a bishop Heelan timeout with 6 minutes and 23 seconds remaining. But the Crusaders answered with a 9-0 run of their own to restore the 24-point lead with 4 minutes to go and put the game away. We're coming out in that fourth quarter, you know? I just told everyone, you know what? We have eight minutes left. Like, let's just play our hardest right minutes, Larson said. And then we go. We cut it down to 15. And we know it's a big deficit. And then I just think they kind of took over again. We still made a couple turnovers after a couple minutes, and then they all kind of ran away with it. Larson finished with a 24-point, 14-rebound double-double. I've said all year long, very athletic, Hannah Fan said. She does some really, really athletic things. You know, jumps well, can handle the ball, hits some shots. Just stuff she's done all year. I'm not surprised. I'm really happy for her. She played extremely well. No other Titans scored more than six. Anna Strohemeyer, Sydney teen, while leading, while second leading scorers, Lucy Scott, was held at just two points on a 1-6 to six shooting, 0-5 to five on threes. I told to, to hold her to what they were held to her to, and her to miss some shots she's usually going to bury. You know, it's one of those nights, Hannah Fan said. And a shooter is going to have that night, and unfortunately tonight was her night. Being able to play the way she did, even in defeat, still meant the world to Larson. Those nine seniors, I love them with all my heart, and you know, they're all my best friends. I've spent every single day with them, she said. I see them at school, I'm with them all the time, and I couldn't be more thankful for the experience I've had with them. And so a couple more months, I'm going to cherish it. But it meant so much, and they're building something for us to bounce off of for next year. So I'm excited. The Titans struggled to slow down the Crusaders' quartet of Abby Lee, 21 points, Molina Snoozy, 19, Brooklyn Stanley, 12, and Maddie Demke, 10. They're a great team, Larson said. They have so many threats on their team. They're deep, so you know it's hard. I hope they win the whole thing because, you know, they're great. With 19 wins, the Titans earned their best win total in four seasons, 21-6 in 2019-20 season, and first trip to state in the same period. For Hannafan, the accomplishment of this season will take some time to set in. To go 19-5 to with a group of kids that I've had since third or fourth grade, those seniors, and then of course the younger kids pitching in and doing some good things helps tremendously. But that was great, he said. LC had just one loss out of the 14 games after winter break before Tuesday, 55-50 to in overtime to Papillion La Vista South, who plays in Nebraska Class A state tournament on Wednesday. And now for a more historically related news article relating to sports, entitled The Ghosts, Sioux City's all-black softball team toured country broke barriers. In honor of Black History Month, we took a look back at Northwest Iowa team that was truly ahead of its time. In the summer of 1937, the Sioux City Ghosts had a problem. The all-black softball team, formed out of a boys' club in the neighborhood around West 7th Street, was set for a game in San Jose, California. By that point, the squad, first managed by Henry Fats Fisher, had been playing ball games in the Golden State for several years. The trouble in San Jose was one of logistics. The game in Northern California City was reportedly so well attended, the players had to park several blocks away from the ball field and walk, gear in hand. 
We got out, wondering what was going on, and soon found out everybody was going to the game, Floyd Fuji Fulton, one of the original ghosts, told the journal in June 1981. Such a huge draw probably shouldn't have been probably shouldn't have surprised the softballers. They tended to win wherever they went. Though records are far from complete, the team had a purported 2,000 wins and less than 100 losses in about 20 years of play. If those winning ways weren't enough, the Ghosts also offered up comedy routines for fans who paid the 50 cents to get through the turnstiles. One of their routines had Fulton run from second base back to first base, which the Ghosts called stealing first. Another bit of funny business involved the team swapping out swath balls for melons. The bending of athletic prowess and slapstick was enough to earn them comparison to basketball's Harlem Globetrotters, whom the Ghosts once challenged to a game. After the team effectively went kaput in 1956, a number of the Ghosts made the Iowa Fast Pitch Softball Hall of Fame. In 1996, the Ghosts were honored by the Smithsonian Institution, which entered memorabilia into the Department of Social and Cultural History. The recognition was for contribution to the world of sports. Like the Globetrotters, the Ghosts came into being at a time when black athletes were kept from playing professional sports with white athletes. The Negro American League was formed because of such segregation. Ghost player L.J. Bambino Favors was reportedly such a ferocious hitter, he was scouted by the Negro League's famed Kansas City Monarchs, the team Satchel Paige and James Cool Papa Bell once played for. They couldn't eat certain places. They couldn't lodge at certain places. From 1930 to 1956, think about the times in America, Sioux City historian Tim Jim Tillman said. Despite that, they still performed in most of in in front of mostly white audiences, but they were ambassadors for Iowa, ambassadors for Sioux City. The Ghost's origin lies in a boys' club of about 40 members, started in 1925, according to the Sioux City Public Museum. During those days, the neighborhood of West 7th Street was home to a number of black businesses and homes. Tillman, author of The Black Experience, 1950 Sioux City, Iowa, and The Journal of African American History, Volume 1, has said of the area, Back in the day, you could do a little sinning at a neighborhood club on a Saturday night and save your soul at Mount Sinai Holiness Church on Sunday morning. The nice thing is, you could do it without having to leave West 7th Street. Games were on the Hopkins School playground, where the team would become the Ghosts first started playing. Many of the boys were brothers, and most players thought of their team as family, the Sioux City Public Museum notes. After games were over, those brothers on the ball field held a dance. We had just enough musicians in the group, Fulton told the Journal in 1981. It didn't take long for the team to get good enough to become Sioux City's Junior League champions. The group's accomplishments helped them get a sponsorship from area businessman Jack Page. They wore uniforms with the team name Jack the Cleaners, according to the Sioux City Public Museum. They didn't have uniform pants, so players would often opt for jeans or bib overalls. As the team gained, <clears throat> as the team gained in popularity locally, the popularity of softball rose nationwide. Per Britannica, in 1923, a rules committee was appointed to publish and circulate a standard set of rules. The committee was later enlarged to form the International Joint Rules Committee on Softball, which came to include representatives of a number of organizations that promote and sponsor softball. The Amateur Softball Association of America, organized in 1933, came to be the recognized governing agency for promotion and control of organized national competition. A sponsorship and standardization of rules allowed for teams such as the soon-to-be-ghost to take to the road. 
They mostly stayed in northwestern Iowa, but Fulton said they did make it to Des Moines by 1932. For any out-of-town events, players had to pay their own way. In either 1932 or 1933, accounts differ, the team was booked by Fisher to play games and entertain crowds. With Fisher came the name changed to Ghosts, a name shared by a basketball team Fisher ran. A new sponsor, Whitney Cleaners, and the uniforms that would become synonymous with the team, a black shirt and pants with orange skull and crossbones. The Washington-based company, Ebbett Field Flannels, which sells reproduction baseball attire, offers a 1935 Ghosts hat on its website. Jerry Cohen, the company's co-founder, said the Ghosts cap design was unusual for the area. End area. I like that there was an alternating panel in the middle, which was very rare at the time. That was only brought into Major League Baseball in 1969 with the Montreal Expos, Cohen said. One of the inaugural Ghosts team were players such as Fulton Favors, Harold Speedy Williams, and Darby and Jimmy Hicks. Without a doubt, the greatest ghost of all was L.J. Favors, Tillman said. Wardle Greer said he played with the Favors in the 1950s and that the catcher, first baseman, could do just about anything. He could pitch, he could catch, he could outrun anyone, Greer said. Greer also remembered the Iowa Fast Pitch Softball Hall of Famer's generosity. He was everybody's friend. Any place we went, he was always helping somebody out, giving people something, giving somebody a back, giving somebody a love. He was just that kind of guy. Everybody loved LJ. People who couldn't pay the 50 cents to get in to see us play, he would pay to get them in. If you met him, you wouldn't forget him. By 1933, or 1934, again, accounts differ, Fisher convinced the ghosts to head west, but only after their Iowa tour had concluded, according to the Sioux City Public Museum. And so, in the early days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first term in office, ghost players piled into the cloth-topped Packard touring car and headed for Merced, California, a town nestled in the San Joaquin Valley and also known as the Gateway to Yosemite. It was not a smooth ride. In Wyoming, the car broke down, and the three of us, Harold Speedy Williams was one, decided to hop a train and continue on to California. Fulton said to the journal, well, the railroad detectives nabbed them and put them in jail. When the rest of us got to California, I quickly tried to book some games, and we collected enough gate receipts to get the guys out of jail. Fulton said when they reached California, they had about 60 cents. The ghosts also faced bigotry and racism when out on the road. Trayla Lee, the daughter of lifelong Sioux City community activist Flora Lee, whose grandfather, Rudy Lee Sr., played for the team, said there were times when the players would have their manager go into a restaurant and get food for them because the business's ref owners refused to serve black people. Some of those stories Rudy Lee kept to herself because, as Trayla Lee said, when you experience a lot of injustice, that's not going to be something to talk about for years to come. Thomas Ritchie, former managing editor of the journal's Weekender publication, worked on a documentary about the ghosts. He said when they were playing in other cities, the ghosts would draw the ire of certain white audience members. Beating white teams who were really good, they weren't supposed to do that, Ritchie said. And then once they would start to beat them, that's when they played the charade, this kind of globetrotter game where they would turn into some fun antics and stuff that would get the crowd excited and laughing. That's how they survived. They weren't just this black team beating white players, but this group of entertainers who were very good at sports. Some of the routines the ghosts did were good enough to make their own players laugh. When I lived in Sioux City, I played one game with them, and I was laughing so hard I could hardly play, Porter Williams said. Up through 1942, the ghosts played several months' worth of games out west. They reportedly once won 67 straight games and never lost more than 14 in the full season of play, some of which ran for more than 150 games. 
Most of these guys saw it as a chance to see America, Richie said. Because of travel commitments, Tillman said, the team didn't want players with families. A number of ghost players from that time period stayed in California, while others opted for Colorado, Nevada, and Utah. Otho N. Fields, who was born in Percival, Iowa, and played first base for the Ghost, moved to Modesto, California in 1942, where he worked for the Bank of America until his death in 1970. When he still lived in Sioux Cities, Fields worked at the Stock Exchange Barbershop and Cudahy Packing Company. His brother Riley, who died in 1965, also played for the Ghosts. Lawrence Freeman relocated to Los Angeles and became the principal of Inglewood High School. When he was living in Sioux City, Freeman ran a bowling alley, worked construction, and did anything he could make to meet and did anything to make ends meet. As his wife, Evelyn Freeman, the town's first black teacher, told the journal in October 2018. According to Evelyn, Lawrence strongly encouraged her to take the job and to make local history as an educator. If I hadn't gotten the job, Lawrence said he'd get the NAACP to protest, and he meant it, she said. Speedy Williams was good enough on the mound to pitch for the Hollister, California All-Star team in the 1930s. He later became softball commissioner in Utah and landed in the Softball Hall of Fame. He worked for United Airlines and made his way up to head skycap position. Frankie Williams, Speedy's brother, became a Navy boxing champion, a martial arts expert, taught at the University of South Dakota, and participated in the local arts. During a 1996 press conference with Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott and other living ghosts, which was filmed by Tillman, Frankie said the farthest east the team ever went was Michigan. The ghost got as far north as Vancouver, Canada. In leaner times, Frankie said the only person who had a mitch, who had a mitt was the catcher. Everybody else played barehanded, he said. Players planting roots elsewhere isn't what eventually upended the first formation of the ghosts. The beginning of World War II did that. Because so many ghosts were young and able-bodied, many of them joined the U.S. military in one form or fashion. One of the last games the ghosts would have played in Sioux City before the years-long hiatus was September 1941. They faced against the Dr. Pepper's team in the Mets' old bread club. A journal article from the time mentions that Red Strickland, a pitcher, lost only four games in 60 starts during the prior year's campaign. The team picked back up again in 1946 and played through 1956. Those were some crucial years for the ghosts. Favors told the journey in 1977 that his best year was in 1947. In the article, Favors recalled competing against Satchel Paige in 1934 and going fishing with him. The year after Favors' high-water mark, 1948, Rudy Lee, a multi-sport dynamo, joined the team just after graduating from Central High School. As a child, he attended school at Hopkins Elementary, where the earliest ghosts played ball. Richie said Rudy Lee had told him that he was enamored with the ghosts. He wanted to play and got on a train and went out west and played with the team. The day after he left high school, Richie said. There was talk about Rudy Lee's brother, Willie Lee, was talented enough to go pro, but never got the chance, Richie Lee said. Willie Lee died while serving in the Korean War. One final iteration of the ghost lasted up to 1961. An Arizona Daily Sun article from June of that year mentions that Sioux City, Iowa colored cowboys ready to play the Flagstaff Carpenters. They are the successors to Fisher's Negro Ghost, who first hit the softball trail in 1932, the Daily Sun reported. At that time, Henry Fisher dreamed up of the idea of combining comedy during the game, shadow ball after the game, and top-notch softball at all times to start the first touring softball team, the Sioux City, Iowa Negro Ghosts. Being considered one of the country's early touring softball teams wasn't the only recognition the Ghosts would get. Fulton was honored as Sioux City's Sportsman of the Year by Benai Earth on Tuesday... 12th, 
1974 at the Marina Inn, former ABC Wide World of Sports host Jim McKay was the guest speaker of the banquet. Favors was inducted into the Iowa Fast Pitch Softball Hall of Fame at a state tournament in 1975. A July 1975 journal article says Favors, a right-handed hitter, probably blasted more balls over the left field fence at Hubbard in a year than most players have in their, put there in their lifetime. In 1923, the park was approved for inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places. Alan Sobieski, fellow Hall of Famer who lives in Correctionville, Iowa, said he heard plenty about the ghosts and Favors over the years. When the 40s Correctionville town team would reminisce about the good old days, the Sioux City ghost playing here in the Correctionville was always brought up, he said. On December 31, 1976, Favors lost a number of his most prized possessions, including the Hall of Fame trophy and a house fire. His years of kindness to members of the community was repaid when local residents donated clothing and other items to help his family bounce back. He died in 1996 at the age of 82. In June 1981, all of the living ghosts got back together for a tribute show at Kirk Hansen Park. It was the one last chance for the community to get a glimpse of living local history. Such an honor might have helped reframe the team. Tillman said back when the ghosts were a going concern, the black community maybe didn't feel the importance of it at all. They were just guys playing ball at Hopkins Ball Field. It's just something they did, Tillman said. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 29th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Corbin Stover from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 